We're standing in the cafeteria of Ballard West Elementary School in Slater, Iowa. It's about 8 p.m. on Monday, February 3rd, and we're in the midst of an historic American political tradition, the Iowa caucuses. The room here is packed with 89 caucus goers, a handful of volunteers, and a few observers, like us. The scene here really is unlike anything I've ever seen in American politics. The people here are neighbors, co-workers, and members of the same churches, all gathered to literally vote with their feet and publicly declare their support for a candidate. The rules of caucuses are super complicated, and we won't go into all the details right now. But basically, instead of casting ballots in the privacy of a voting booth like a normal primary, at a caucus, the members disperse to different corners of the room to publicly show their support for candidates. We came out to the Slater caucus tonight because of one Slater resident participating here, Kyle Munson. Kyle was born and raised in Iowa and knows the state inside out. We were chatting with him in the cafeteria when a fellow caucus goer came up to make sure we knew exactly who we were talking to. Actually, he's fairly famous, or he was famous in Iowa before he gave it up. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Still famous to us. Yeah, yeah. He's still famous to us. Oh, you know who he is? Yeah, yeah. We've, yeah, these these guys are. Yeah. Interviewed him before this. We've been following his work because we work on China Iowa connections, and he like pioneered that work in many ways. He went to China and looked at it from an Iowa perspective. So, when that caucus goer said Kyle was fairly famous in Iowa, he wasn't kidding. And when we said Kyle pioneered the work on Iowa-China connections, we weren't kidding. I'll explain. Over the last 25 years or so, Kyle Munson built a career for himself as a journalist at the Des Moines Register, the most important newspaper in the state of Iowa. He worked his way up from news assistant to music critic to entertainment editor and finally to one of the most prestigious roles in Iowa journalism, the official Iowa columnist of the Des Moines Register. For decades, that column has served as a voice for Iowans. When Kyle stepped into the role in 2008, he became just the fourth Iowa columnist since World War II. In Kyle's columns, he wrote about all things Iowa. He's dissected the state fair, profiled ordinary people, and brought local context and color to the issues that were shaping the state. I tended to want to zig when others were zagging. I didn't want to be with the reporter's scrum. And so to find those unique stories that weren't being told, you know, it could have been an Iowan that was being overlooked or a group of Iowans that were being uh, overlooked. That local beat took an international turn in 2012 when Kyle learned that China's future president, Xi Jinping, was due to pay Iowa a visit. It was exciting because we, there was at that time there was still this euphoria about the increasingly closer ties between the two nations and what might come of that and where China was at that time there was this there was this thinking that maybe it was he was going to be this next step in westernization of the of China how could it you know how could it not because his understanding had come through the heartland Welcome to Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast, brought to you by Macropolo. I'm Matt Sheehan, a fellow here at Macropolo, think tank of the Paulson Institute in Chicago. And I'm Holly He, multimedia and research associate at Macropolo. In Heartland Mainland, we're exploring the tangled ties between the People's Republic of China and the state of Iowa. Over the last month, we've examined these ties along four key dimensions the impact of Chinese students at Iowa universities. So I always say, I did not choose Iowa, Iowa choose me. 
the deeply personal political connections between the places. But you think about G's history here, three days of history, kind of outshining about 100 years of American history. How Iowa soybean farmers have fared during the trade war. I think it's gone on long enough now. Uh, we're not holding our breath. And what happened when small Iowa factories dealt with exports made in China? Everybody, almost everybody, lost their jobs. Through these stories, we've seen what happens when two vastly different cultures and economies collide, and what happens when you mix some Chinese grit with that famous Iowa nice. In all these stories, we've brought our own perspectives, perspectives that are rooted in years of experience in China and a whole bunch of research across the state of Iowa. But for our finale, we wanted to flip that perspective on its head. We wanted to get Kyle's take. That's because after decades of writing about Iowa from the ground up, in 2017, Kyle traveled to China for a reporting trip, doing a deep dive into Iowa-China ties. That gave him a front-row seat to the high hopes and hard realities of this pivotal relationship. So we headed to Slater, Iowa, on Caucus Day to hang out with Kyle. In today's series finale, we chat with Kyle about the bilateral relationship and follow him out to the latest and maybe the last Iowa caucus. Welcome to Heartland Mainland. It's just a couple hours until tonight's caucus starts, and we're sitting with Kyle in his cozy home in Slater, Iowa, a city of about 1,500 people just outside of Des Moines. So I grew up in on a farm in Southwest Iowa. My dad was a public school teacher, and it was an idyllic acreage, flocks of chickens and, and whatnot, so kind of small a agriculture, a huge garden that my parents maintained, made their own sauerkraut. Anyway, so just rural southwest Iowa near Council Bluffs, Omaha. Kyle has baked us a plate of hot dish, a tater tot casserole with green beans and meat, and he's telling us about how he got into journalism. Um, even in elementary school, I was uh, on the staff of the sixth grade news flash in Macedonia, Iowa, but I started my career in journalism loving writing and then fell in love with the news business. That passion for good stories drove Kyle throughout his career and eventually landed him a dream gig as the Iowa columnist at the Des Moines Register. And again, it's this blend of reporting, kind of this folksy approach, serious issues, you know, features, newsy, politics, a mix of every, really an open canvas. Starting in 2012, when China's future president visited Iowa, Kyle became the first to report on a unique beat, Iowa-China relations. As Matt and I drove around Iowa to comb through these ties, we saw Kyle's footprints everywhere. He was the first one to write about the story of Rick Kimberly, the farmer we interviewed in the third episode. And to me, it was fascinating to learn about all the backstory where this really was a saga. These conversations between major figures in China and these uh, state-level officials in Iowa. So just the echo of that through history was, was interesting. So to be there like on the Kimberly farm and, and to see some of this stuff play out was uh, felt like a historical moment. Discovering this history, Kyle and a lot of other people believe that U.S.-China relations were headed toward a better path. But Donald Trump's victory in 2016 signaled the beginning of a far more aggressive stance towards China. To manage this crucial relationship, President Trump installed an ambassador who had strong personal ties to China, Terry Branstad, the two-time governor of Iowa. And that's when Kyle decided to go deep with the Iowa-China story. In the fall of 2017, Kyle and his colleague Kelsey Kramer 
received a grant from the Pulitzer Center to travel to China and produce a series of stories and videos on the relationship. They titled the series "Iowa in the Heart of China." Here's Kyle in the opening video of the series. Thanks to history's unpredictable and winding path, it is Iowa, an agricultural powerhouse in the middle of America, that has cultivated an outsized influence on U.S.-China relations. It was an interesting time for an Iowan to be in China. Terry Branstad had just taken over as ambassador, and officials from China and Iowa were cutting ribbons at a new friendship farm in rural Hebei Province. This was Kyle's first time in China, and one early morning in Beijing, while taking a walk near his hotel, he somehow wandered off to Tiananmen Square. Somehow, I made my way down this alley, and I ended up bypassing all the security. And I walked the wrong way through this checkpoint. And this guard's looking at me, and I'm very strangely. He just kind of then waves me on through. I was obviously, I guess, I didn't look like a threat, and so I ended, <laughs> I ended up being in the square. It was early enough for the for the anthem, and just everybody just swelling toward、uh, the front of the square for the anthem, and、um, I don't know. It was it was quite a moment. That moment on the square was especially significant for Kyle as a reporter for the Des Moines Register. Back in 1979, as China was just beginning to open up to the world, the Des Moines Register's then publisher David Crudenier also made a trip to China. He took photos in Tiananmen and wrote his own reflections on a country just emerging from decades of isolation. He wrote, "I had been to India and I had just witnessed the crowd at Living History Farms for Pope John Paul II." So I thought I was prepared for China, but the mass of humanity in both Peking and Shanghai dwarfed anything I'd seen before. Nearly four decades after that visit, Kyle stood in the same spot on Tiananmen Square and held up a yellowed copy of that original article, recreating the same photo for the Des Moines Register. He titled his own piece "38 Years Later: A Much Changed China Greets the Register at Tiananmen Square." I think when we visited China in the fall of 2017 for the project, in retrospect, that was the last gasp of optimism, maybe, because Branstad was just being installed, and you know the hardcore trade war hadn't really truly engaged yet, and so the business community, the diplomatic community, was still holding out hope that there was a solution on the way. It felt like、um, it felt like people hoping we were going to turn a corner, but we never did. In his reporting, Kyle looked at Iowa-China relations from the ground up, and lots of these ties are independent of electoral politics. But every four years, the Iowa caucuses place the state under a glaring spotlight, and the results of those caucuses do end up shaping broader U.S.-China relations. That's because the caucuses have traditionally acted as one of the most powerful filters in determining which candidates are viable. This year, that filter was applied to several candidates with pretty divergent attitudes towards China. Former Vice President Joe Biden frequently dismissed the idea that China is a serious challenger to the U.S. China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man! They can't even figure out how to deal with the the the, 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 the fact that they have this great division between the China Sea and the mountains in the east. I mean, in the west. Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren instead emphasized the way trade with China has impacted American workers, particularly those in manufacturing. So I am not anti-China, but we have got to establish trade policies which do not allow corporate America. 
to simply shut down in this country and refuse to pay workers here a decent wage. I have been critical of America's trade policy for a very long time. We need a trade policy that puts American workers, American small businesses, and American consumers first. Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have spoken to the impact of the trade war on farmers in the Midwest, but also some of the less concrete aspects of the relationship. When it comes to foreign policy, I think we need to keep our promises and keep our threats. And this president has done neither. And a country like China, their leaders, they watch that and they know. What you're going to see when I'm president is uh, a trade strategy that really focuses on making sure that we make things easier, not harder for Americans, and an overall strategy that uh, puts American values, not just American economic interests, uh, in a very front foot. Putting aside the stances of the specific candidates, Iowa's first-in-the-nation status already puts extra political weight behind the issues that Iowans care about. That's true for domestic issues and also for certain foreign policy questions, like trade policy. Iowa has experienced both the up and downsides of global trade. In the Rust Belt towns of eastern Iowa, small manufacturing businesses were hit hard by the China shock of low-cost imports. During that same period, Iowa's soybean, corn, and pig farmers benefited tremendously from growing exports into the Chinese market. Over the past two years, these groups have borne the brunt of a U.S.-China trade war. The concerns of Iowa farmers are top of mind for any politician with serious presidential ambitions. That amplifies the political costs of a trade war in the U.S. But that finger on the scale of American foreign policy is dependent on Iowa's outsized role in American politics. If the Iowa caucuses were to lose much of their importance, what would that mean for Iowa's role in U.S.-China relations? For over two decades, Kyle has observed and covered the caucuses as a reporter, but during that time, he never actually participated in the event himself. When we visited him in Slater, he was preparing to do that for the first time. I'm going to say I'm completely nervous. So my plan tonight is to go in and probably start in the first ballot for Klobuchar, and then if she's not viable, pivot to Pete. In some ways, it feels, I don't know, maybe my mind would change tomorrow. (laughs) Slater's caucus site is just a few blocks away from Kyle's house in the cafeteria of a local elementary school. When we arrive, Kyle's wife, Anne, is at the door helping out with registration. Nominating. Senate, U.S. Senate, U.S. Senate. Look at all these are for Senate. In the front of the cafeteria, campaign precinct captains have set up shop with signs and pamphlets. Elizabeth Warren volunteers have covered a row of tables in their bright teal tablecloth, and Bernie Sanders' team have staked out their own section covered in deep blue signs. Okay, confidence and nervousness on scales of 0 to 10. Um, I'd say confidence and nervousness both at 10. That's Samantha, a precinct captain with the Sanders campaign, in charge of keeping an eye on the results and converting as many people as possible. Just like marking down people, like making sure the amount of people that we have is uh, like reaching that viability threshold. And also like making sure like people get their uh, candidate preference sheets signed in the correct way and at the correct time. Did you hear that word viability threshold? That's just one of the few caucus lingo we learned tonight. The rules of caucuses are complicated and a lot has changed since 2016. Here's a quick rundown. At the beginning, all the caucus goers split off into different corners of the room to show their support for different candidates. Then, if any given candidate doesn't have 15% of support, they're declared to be, quote, not viable. 
and their supporters have the chance to switch to a new candidate. At the end, the delegates of each precinct are divided up based on each candidate's number of supporters. As the 7 p.m. start time approaches, people slowly trickle in and find a place to sit and chat with their neighbors. Now I'm going to uh, read a message from our state chair, Troy Price. Uh, welcome and thank you for attending our 2020 precinct caucus tonight. The chair of the Slater caucus starts with some announcements for the local Democratic Party and then instructs campaign representatives on where to stand in the room. Sanders, why don't you go kind of back toward the doors that everyone came in? Um, Buttigieg, you want to stop there? Once the candidates all have their corners, everyone gets up and moves to assemble behind their first-choice candidate. At our precinct of 89 people, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar are viable during the first round. To our right, only two or three people get behind the Joe Biden sign. And to our left, a small group of Elizabeth Warren supporters are right at the edge of viability. Got to poach a couple? It's time to start making impassioned pleas. That's the interesting and pretty weird aspect of the caucuses. When your group is not viable in the first round, it seems like there can be a bit of embarrassment, almost like a loss of face. It reminds me of a high school cafeteria where all the popular kids sit together and others are left in their own little groups. We spoke with Anders Irving, a Warren supporter in the middle of making that switch. Okay, so Warren not viable. You're currently vacillating. Who are the potential candidates? Uh, Yang and uh, Mayor Pete. And in your eyes, what are the pros and cons on those two guys? Well, I really like Yang's proposal for a thousand dollars a month, but I'm very worried about how he's going to pay for that. Because that sounds, you know, way out there in left field. But I, I, I like people who are think out of the box. And what about Mayor Pete? Mayor Pete, I think he's got a lot of energy, a lot of good ideas. I like that he's a vet and he stands up for himself well. And he's he's not afraid to say things that others won't. After some deliberation with the other Warren supporters, Anders decided to go stand with the Pete Buttigieg campaign. After that round of switches, we had our final standings. Buttigieg and Sanders tied with 32 supporters each, while Klobuchar had 24. No other candidates were viable in the end. Slater had exactly three delegates to divide up. So that breakdown meant the three winners each received one delegate. Here in the cafeteria of Ballard West Elementary, the whole thing went pretty much as planned. Before heading out, we caught up with Kyle again. He was happy to see that his first choice of Amy Klobuchar received a delegate, but Kyle sounded a bit wary about the future of the Iowa caucuses. I have a feeling that this could be the last First in the Nation caucuses because of one reason or another. I mean, there's so much debate. Iowa doesn't represent demographically. It depends how the numbers come out tonight, if everything is smooth. But Iowa's had to fight to, to hold on to this this long. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. As we packed up at the Slater caucus, there weren't any official results, but on Twitter, caucus goers and reporters around the state began cobbling together a picture of the night's results. 
it quickly became clear that Biden was dramatically underperforming, Bernie Sanders was doing very well, and Pete Buttigieg was way outperforming expectations. So we headed over to Drake University, where Mayor Pete was scheduled to hold his caucus night rally. Sanders was having his rally at a Holiday Inn just 10 minutes away. So we figured we'd wait for those official results and then decide where we had the best chance of catching a victory party. When we rolled into the Bell Center at Drake University, the place felt electric with excitement. The supporters packing the gymnasium had heard similar rumblings about Mayor Pete's momentum at the caucuses that night, and they were giddy for confirmation. But that confirmation wasn't coming. As the hours ticked by, the Iowa Democratic Party still wasn't releasing any official results, and rumors began to swirl about an emerging fiasco with the vote count. This year, the Iowa Democratic Party had changed several rules about how the caucuses worked, and that also added a new way for precincts to report the results, an app. Yep, that app-based reporting of results was going about as well as any sane person could have predicted. After hours of delay, still no official results. Massive confusion over a new reporting system. This is not the finish that anyone expected. This is an epic failure by the Iowa State Democratic Party, which is all but assured that no matter what the results are now. The crowd was getting anxious, and so was I, but for a different reason. I had accidentally left my backpack at the caucus site in Slater. Kyle had helped me track down the phone number of the caucus chair, and at 11 p.m., she finally called me to say that we could come pick it up. So, with no results to speak of, we piled back into the car and drove 30 minutes north to the snowy streets of Slater. When I finally got the backpack, it was close to midnight, and I asked the caucus chair how things had gone with reporting the results. Turned out that the Slater group had made a wise decision. She told me they'd phoned in the results right away. They hadn't even tried to use the app. As the results began to trickle out over the coming days, Mayor Buttigieg held a narrow lead in state delegate equivalents, the traditional metric for determining the winner, while Bernie Sanders held a small lead in the popular vote. As we record this episode a week after the caucuses, the Iowa Democratic Party has finally, given what it says is the official tally of state delegate equivalents, with Pete Buttigieg leading by around one-tenth of one percent. But major media outlets have still refrained from declaring a winner, and the Bernie Sanders campaign has already called for a partial re-canvas of the results. So what impact will the fiasco in Iowa have on national politics? And how will that in turn affect U.S.-China relations? We already covered the candidates' different takes on China policy. But the deeper and more long-lasting impact here likely depends on whether Iowa can keep its first-in-the-nation status. Even before the voting debacle, we heard Kyle predicting that this might be the last time Iowa goes first. If Iowa loses its traditional role as the gatekeeper for presidential campaigns, that will shift the political calculus of future candidates. It will decrease the need for all presidential hopefuls to keep corn and soybean farmers happy, a major influence on American ag policy for decades. This has also shaped the relationship between the U.S. and China. As the trade war heated up, China used tariffs on American farm products to exert pressure on U.S. politicians to negotiate a truce. The current trade war has been dialed back with the phase one trade deal, and we may be on the road toward a eventual resolution. But in the event that tensions flare up again, 
and the Iowa caucuses no longer carry the weight they once did, we could lose one of the stronger political checks against a future trade war. And other external factors might lead to Iowa losing some of its pull in U.S.-China relations. If a Democrat wins the White House this fall, that will likely mean an end to Terry Branstad's tenure as the U.S. ambassador in Beijing. Should that come to pass, it would remove one of the most prominent voices of Iowa from conversations between American and Chinese leaders. It's been a big decade for Iowa and China. We saw agriculture trade and educational exchanges skyrocket. A decades-old connection between China's president and Iowa was rekindled. This connection transformed one small Iowa town and turned ordinary Iowans into overnight celebrities in China. But as the decade wore on, these high hopes ran up against the reality of a bilateral relationship that was increasingly defined by conflict. Kyle Munson was there the whole time, profiling the key players and tracing these stories back and forth across the Pacific. In 2018, after 24 years at the Des Moines Register, including eight as its Iowa columnist, Kyle left the paper. He now works as the head of a content studio for a financial services company, but he still stays up to date on world affairs and keeps in touch with lots of people who built these Iowa-China ties. At the caucus in Slater, we asked Kyle whether the stormy state of affairs at a national level had shifted his own perception of China. I'm always worried about the pendulum, my own sentiment or our national sentiment, swinging too much either way, right? I mean, we we do have some real realities to confront. What does it mean to have uh, a million Muslims in a a re-education camp, for instance? We have some really hard issues to work on, but I never just want to veer so much just... um, followed by political tensions, because I do think that regardless of the political tensions, we have millions of people in both countries who share a lot in common and can do a lot of good for each other. Um, And I I don't want to, I never want to, never let that be a gulf that we can never cross. For Kyle, this touches on something deeper than the ties between Iowa and China. He traces it further back to Iowa's governor before Terry Branstad. Robert Ray. As a highly respected five-term governor, Robert Ray laid the foundation for Iowa's global ties through his own humanitarian advocacy in the 1970s. We had Governor Bob Ray, who reached out as an Iowan to the world and accepted refugees from Southeast Asia and around the world. And that, that friendship structure is what led to these kind of sister state agreements that got us to this special relationship with China. And so that genuine sentiment, the Statue of Liberty type sentiment, I think you still have to keep hold of that even, even if you have to face down these harsh realities. Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast, is produced by Holly He and me, Matt Sheehan. You have just finished the last episode, and we thank you for sticking with us on this journey. For behind-the-scenes photos, anecdotes, and insights that didn't make it into the podcast, follow us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is MattSheehan88, Sheehan spelled S-H-E-E-H-A-N. And my Twitter handle is JenningHollyHe, Jenny spelled as J-I-A-N-I-N-G my Chinese name, and he is spelled as H-E. 
Putting together this series was a team effort, and we got help from so many generous people along the way. We want to thank Kyle Munson, whose tireless reporting brought so many news stories to light. Swallow Yin, who connected us with the many interesting characters whom you heard in the podcast. We'd like to thank Damien Ma for his copy editing work and guidance from the beginning, and Young Kim for her beautiful illustrations of each episode. You can find those illustrations on our website at macropolo.org slash podcasts. We'd like to thank Kristen Gomez for her help in getting the word out and the entire team at Macro Polo and the Paulson Institute for the support and diaios along the way. We'd like to thank Jeff Ding for introducing us to Iowa City and gifting us the name of this podcast. If you're interested in China's artificial intelligence landscape, check out Jeff's awesome newsletter, China AI. That's spelled C-H-I-N-A-I. And thanks to Ash and Spencer for giving us permission to use their music in this series. We would also like to thank our assistant producer, Wu J. Julia Song, and our student fellow, Shiryun Wen, for their work on research, writing, and production. We couldn't have made this podcast without Wu J. and Shiryun, so huge thanks to both of them. And last but not least, we want to offer our most heartfelt thank you to our listeners. Thanks for your encouraging words and feedback. They kept us going when we were editing and writing late into the night. Heartland Mainland is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find it on our website, macropolo.org slash podcasts. That's macro as in macroeconomics and polo as in Marco Polo. Again, thanks for going on this adventure with us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I'm Matt Sheehan. And I'm Holly Hu. Until next time.